hello, friends, and welcome back to Holy Conversations, the podcast of the Wesleyan Covenant Association. We're so glad that you have joined us today. I am Stephanie Greenwald, and I'm joining you from Oklahoma with my co-host, Reverend Bob Kaler. Bob, how are you doing today? Doing pretty well here in Colorado. It's a bit smoky. We've got uh, smoke from the wildfires there in the West, and so we go outside. We can't see the mountains, which is always a crisis here when you can't well, see yes. the mountains because they're That's only one of the a couple best miles parts away. About living in Colorado, isn't a- it? Absolutely. And uh, chewing the air before you breathe it also not good. But we do pray <laughs> for those who continue to to deal with the wildfires there in the West, both those who are fighting it and those who are victims. So we pray for yeah. them, and we hope that the the air clears soon and in more than one way. So yes, we're looking so forward true. to that. But uh, but so far, it's been a good uh, sort of end of summer, beginning of fall, and ready to get after it. Yeah, good. Well, I'm so excited about our guest today, and I know you're going to tell us just a little bit more about her. So why don't you introduce her for us? Well, I'm pleased to introduce Angela Pleasance, who is the new Vice President of Clergy and Church Relations for the WCA. And Angela's been a district superintendent. I'm going to let you, Angela, tell people a little bit more about yourself and your journey into ministry and also into this new position. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's good to be here. So tell us about you and uh, what brought you to this point and where you've been serving and what you've been, what you've been doing in ministry up to this point and taking on this new role. Well, that's a lot in a small amount of time. Um, One of the things I often enjoy doing, uh, I think I like talking about ministry more than myself, and I never know what to say uh, in in describing myself. And so throughout the years, I thought, how can I describe who Angela is? And and there's one thing that I think I can say is uh, someone who goes against the grain, so to speak. Um, and it started for me actually way back in, in high school. I have a love and, and passion for hiking. And people often ask me, well, when did you first develop that passion for hiking? And I think it was in high school. I was in advanced biology. We were out uh, in the mountains studying nature. And I just wanted to shoot away because I felt my instructor, my teacher was going a little bit too slow. And I was so fascinated and excited about this mountain we were on. And so without even thinking, I just shot off and hiked all the way up to the summit. Didn't realize everybody was searching for me. (laughs) And when they found me, of course, I got some some points taken off on that grade. But anyway, uh, (laughs) so it kind of went against the grain of the the group. I kind of wanted to just get out there and explore. And it seems like my whole life has been that, always wanting to go deeper, wanting to explore different facets. Um, My background is business. My undergraduate is a bachelor's of science in business administration and marketing. And I worked before going to seminary after college, I worked for a while at uh, Winston-Salem State University in the building, uh, in the business department before entering seminary and uh, in 96, graduating in 99 and uh, pastored several churches throughout Western North Carolina Conference. And um, I remember it was, uh, I was pastoring First Methodist in Mount Holly. I got a call from Bishop, Bishop Good Pastor, and he left a message to my secretary, tell Angela to, uh, to give me a call. And I was always wanting to stay under the radar. I had no idea why the bishop was calling me. And when my secretary said, well, Bishop Good Pastor wants you to call, and I said, is it important? <laughs> Again, going against the grave. And she said, I don't know. He didn't leave a message. And I said, okay, I get to it. I think several days went by and literally, I, this, I hope he's not going to listen to this, but I literally forgot. 
So we were in the middle of launching a community garden. I just, it left my mind and he called back again and I'm like, what does he want? So I called the secretary and she said, he wants you to come in. I said, is it important? Do I have to? (laughs) She said, yeah, I think you want to come in for this. And, And he, long story short, he asked me to serve as a district superintendent. I asked for time to pray about it. And he said, well, I have prayed and this is what God has told me. (laughs) (laughs) So I ended up serving as a district superintendent for uh, four years and um, on the cabinet. So that's kind of my life (laughs) in a small nutshell. Yeah. And so what brought you to this new position with uh, WCA? Well, it was um, when it was advertised, I sent in, I just going through a lot of uh, prayer over this, I sent in my resume um, and then received the call. And one of the reasons why I sent in my resume, when I looked at the job description, which looking at it, it might seem like something that's very insurmountable, but I'm one of those people that uh, strange type A personality, people that love detailed work. And I think that also comes from that business background that I had. But I also, what I enjoyed with what I saw in the job description that uh, equally tried to put into being a district superintendent, most people think that the administrative side is kind of separate from ministry. They, when they think of ministry, they think of parish ministry, um, pulpit ministry, but they don't see the administrative side as ministry, but it is just important as a part of ministry uh, that I think we should also have that spiritual aspect that, that is poured into it. And, and I've heard clergy say it makes a difference when an individual approach it from that way, because we have to remember one of the spiritual gifts is administration. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and that is uh, one area that is my giftedness. And so I sent in my resume and received the call for an interview. And so here I am. That's so neat. So tell us a little bit more about what this role of vice president of clergy and church relations entails. What are the things that you're doing right now? Yeah, so it's, you probably have seen the job description, which it is, uh, as I said, insurmountable. But uh, one of the things that I'm working on now is that that's taking quite a bit of time. But at the same time, we want to make sure that we have everything in place so that when the Global Methodist Church is formed, people are not at the last minute asking questions and how do we uh, fold over into this, Uh, looking at some other denominations that have gone through what we're experiencing now in ours that did not have a plan. And a lot of things, what they're saying over and over is, we wish we did have a plan. Mm -hmm. And so basically right now is uh, developing procedures and processes that will go before the Transitional Leadership Council for uh, final approval. procedures and processes for our clergy to be able to roll over into the Global Methodist Church, because once the protocol is approved, um, immediately people can start joining the Global Methodist Church. And not only clergy, but also churches uh, to be able to roll over into the Global Methodist Church. So there's going to have to be a process developed for that. And also uh, for clergy, we're also uh, part of the responsibility is uh, looking at uh, institutions of higher learning 
and what are some um, procedures that we need to have in place to approve uh, uh, institutions of higher learning so that clergy can continue their educational requirements, uh, courses of study, uh, what are some processes we need to have in place, processes of background checks <laughs> that we need to have in place, psychological testing that we need to have in place. So the list continues on and on. So you're really building the structure for what is to come. Yes, correct. Yeah, and I think that's a that's a really valuable piece because we often think we the questions we get asked a lot are about structure and how is this going to work and what what's going to happen and 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 people are always kind of like two steps ahead like how do I get in there but but you've got to to build the bridge before you walk across it or in this case building it as we walk across it to some degree. So obviously we've been doing the podcast for a while where this is episode like going to be like episode 39, I think um, if we go back and um, and so we've gotten questions through the, the podcast. I know that I get asked questions all the time. I know Stephanie gets asked questions all the time about clergy and church relationships. Um, we were talking before, T tell the story about when you started the job, you, you the, the announcement happened Tell that story because we were talking about that before we jumped on. Yes, it, it is so funny. So when the announcement was rolled out on on Friday on that particular Friday, it was seven o'clock in the morning that it, it comes out uh, the newsletter here in the Eastern Time. Literally seven o five a.m. My phone lights up. I'm getting text messages and phone calls and emails from clergy with questions. And I was thinking 7.05 a.m., who is on their internet looking at an announcement and then calling? <laughs> so we have a lot of anxious people uh, across our nation and uh, people with a lot of questions. Yeah, I, I thought to myself when I saw the job description first announced, I thought, wow, dealing with anxious clergy, that sounds like a ton of fun. <laughs> <laughs> and, and yet, and yet you are the perfect person to do this. So, mm -hmm. so when people are calling you now and your phone is lighting up and you're probably getting bombarded with emails and so forth, what are some of those frequently asked questions that people are bringing forth? What are some of the things that, that are people are asking and how are you answering them? This is a great opportunity for us to get at a wider audience so that we maybe can help your phone not blow up <laughs> quite as much so that you can work on some of this other stuff. So what are some of those frequently asked, asked questions that you're getting? Yes, uh, many of the questions are, majority are coming from clergy. A few are coming from uh, local churches and I've already been around to some of the churches talking to leadership teams, but I'll start with the clergy first. Um, some of the questions that I'm getting are from either licensed local pastors or uh, associate members and when they read the transitional book of doctrines and discipline, they don't see anything particularly uh, listed as licensed local pastor or associate membership. And one of the things that I'm sharing with them is that we no longer have those categories. And so, of course, the next question is, where, where do I fit? Will I have a place? And so with the licensed local pastors, and if they look under paragraph 407 in the um, doctrines of and discipline, they will find the educational requirements. And if they are a licensed local pastor and they have completed their course of study, then they will come in as an elder. 
in elder status. And so these are some things that I, I talk through or either if, if they email me that I email back uh, to these individuals. Uh, associate membership is the same way because the, again, they're looking at this and they say, I don't see anything about associate membership. Uh, if they have not completed all of their educational requirements, then they will come in in a uh, deacon status. And once they complete their educational requirements, then they will be ordained in, uh, as an elder. So they will be either ordained as a deacon or ordained as an elder. And so th this is one of the questions that I'm receiving. Uh, another question is from people of other denominations and they're asking, uh, will we have a place uh, if, as a clergy if we wanted to join the Global Methodist Church and it's very similar. We would look at their educational piece and uh, depending upon the denomination that they're coming from, if it's a non-Wesleyan denomination, then they would uh, possibly have to take classes like polity and uh, Methodist history, Wesleyan history, uh, additional courses like that before their ordination, um, which is also again approved at, at the conference. The other uh, question that I'm getting, a large amount uh, of questions are coming in from deacons because deacons uh, are asking, is this a, the way, when they read this, it looks to them like this is a stepping stone. So is this a stepping stone to, to elders? Does our ordination not count? Um, that is furthest from the truth. Uh, deacons are very valuable, very important. And yes, they do have a place and their ordination will be uh, respected uh, alongside of the ordination of elders. So it's not a stepping stone. But one of the things that I've encouraged deacons is there is a wonderful article uh, that was written by Suzanne Nicholson. And I love the way she describes the process. And I just wanna read a little snippet from what she writes because her words to me uh, says it best in how she describes the ordination of, of deacon. Uh, but she talks about in the draft book of doctrine and discipline, uh, the new Methodist church understands elders as called out from deacons to provide specific ministry of word sacrament order in the church. Elders would retain their calling as laity and deacons, even as they participate in the order of elders. This vision, she calls it, is a nested ministry in which each order is called out from the previous one and it portrays an interconnectedness, um, an interconnectedness of laity, of deacons and elders. So it's not like a stepping stone, but we're all interconnected together. And I think that's such a beautiful image that she gives in her writing. So it's just a matter of affirming to deacons that yes, your ordination will count, it does matter. And, and some who are ordained deacon uh, choose to remain an ordained deacon. They don't choose to, to become an ordained elder. And, and if they do remain an ordained deacon, then there is a, a portion in the, a paragraph in the uh, doctrines and disciplines that the bishop will uh, give them authority, sacramental authority, if they're uh, pastoring a local church or if they're in some type of extension ministry. Mm -hmm. so, so those are uh, some of the questions from clergy that are coming in. 
-hmm. churches, when I've gone to churches to speak, uh, a lot of questions that I'm receiving from the local church, the the main questions they have is around the trust clause. So we talk a lot about that and what that looks like. Uh, As you know, in the Global Methodist Church, there will no longer be a a trust clause that the church will maintain their property on their property. And Walter Fenton did a great article on that. And plus he did a, in that article, he talked about the history of the trust clause, which was fascinating. Um, I've received questions. Well, I have an endowment. Does that mean the current United Methodist Church will receive our endowment once we uh, roll over to Global Methodist Church? No, they will not. If it's if it's the church's endowment, then the endowment will come uh, with the church once they roll over. Uh, the other main question I'm getting from a lot of churches, from lay people, is what is the level of accountability? How do we prevent ourselves from getting to where we are now? <laughs> and uh, one of the things that, that we talk about there is the accountability that's written into the doctrines and, and discipline. Um, and so in paragraph uh, 354, there's uh, a portion that's called fidelity, a congregational fidelity. And so we go, I'd go over that piece with them that talks about the accountability piece, that if somebody is not living into the doctrines and disciplines, this is what can happen. And of course, the, the final question, uh, common question I'm getting from churches, do we pay apportionments? <laughs> um, and so we talk about that. We talk about the congregational funding that churches will pay, but it will not be this insurmountable amount like what we see now because we won't have all the bureaucracy in the new denomination. And so they're, they're pleased with that. And we talked about um, what that, that funding will look like and, and where the money would go. So a lot of the money will be kept within the local church for them to be able to do mission and ministry. So a couple of follow-up questions. One, I, I got questions about certified lay ministers, certified lay servants. Um, have, have you addressed that at all at this point? We have. And, and again, certified lay ministry is uh, another piece that's in our draft of doctrines and discipline. And we will also receive certified lay ministers uh, into the new denomination, and they will uh, be able to continue to serve as they are serving now. So there is a very valuable need for our certified lay ministers. And the other thing I thought as you were talking is that, you know, there could be a lot of clergy wanting to transfer at once. And, you know, the process of that has to be fairly unwieldy, you know, to, to learn, you know, the... (laughs) <laughs> what processes they have to go through, um, learning the secret handshake, whatever it is that, that has to happen. Will that take place on the global level? Uh, d- does that all funnel through you or does that funnel through uh, local annual conferences whenever those are constituted using a process that you're generated, generating? How does that, how does that work? Yes, so it, it will come through the, the local annual conferences, but, and that's something that I'm actually working on right now. I just kind of finished my little first stage of it. And, and Keith and I talked on Monday and he gave me the green light to continue with what I'm working on. And so basically what I've done with that for, and, I, and I'm going to use clergy as an example, because I, I started with, with that piece first, but what I did was I took um, a section on local pastors, a section on deacons and elders, a section on um, associate membership, and and a section on 
pastor, clergy from other denominations uh, because some of the forms and so forth will look different depending upon where they're coming from and coming into. And I started to write down different forms that would be needed where each individual would have to go through in order to transfer over. For example, uh, one of the things we would want to do is to pull over into the new denomination, their supervisory file. And um, if they're a local pastor, their uh, local pastor file that DCOM holds so that we can look through uh, those files and see what has been completed, what has not been completed, et cetera, et cetera. And then there's certain, like, for example, if uh, someone is just coming in and maybe have not done the uh, psychological exam, then we're going to have to develop um, that portion. So we would have to develop that meaning, what doctors are we gonna use? Um, and who would be looking at the reports and the forms and, and then sitting down with the particular clergy, et cetera. So all of these different forms will be developed um, and then the step-by-step -step process for each one of those groups to be able to roll in. And then um, the final forms, once that is done on their local conference level, when they go before the, the board of ministry to sit down and go through this, uh, once that is complete, then the final forms will come to me to do the approval and the stamp of uh, kind of like a check, checking off of that. So, so in effect, I mean, when you have, when you have clergy who are coming out of the United Methodist church, they'll need to do some of these steps that they've previously done coming into the new denomination, like a psychological evaluation, or is that for those coming from different places? Just trying to clarify a little bit, because I know that'll be a question. Yes, if they have not had the psychological. Gotcha. Okay. Now, and so if we're looking. I'm worried about that myself, just to <laughs> I know, I thought, especially I after a year and a, a year and a half of COVID, I'm a little more concerned about that. So. Exactly. <laughs> and, and, or if we're looking through um, the, the, their files and see that uh, there's some things that maybe we need to, to address, then, then we would have the individual go through the psychological again, but, but that's if we do not have the psychological file. Gotcha. It's so helpful to hear these uh, answers to these questions. I know I think I've received every one of these questions, so I'm so glad that you're addressing each one of them. One of the ones I'm curious about, too, is how, what is the role of retired clergy in the GMC? Is it similar to what it is now? Will it be different in any way? So the, the role of retired clergy is there. There is no retired clergy. They will be called senior status. And uh, currently in our uh, present denomination, uh, there is a retirement age, 72. But in the Global Methodist Church, we would not have a retirement age. So they can continue to serve. But, and I, actually, I like that because if you look at scripture, nowhere do you see anything uh, that says retirement. And, and that's where the Global Methodist Church is coming from. We're, look, we're holding to the biblical concept that there's no retirement in ministry. Mm -hmm. um, so they would take uh, senior status and they can continue to serve in a local church. And some may wish to uh, step out of that role, and, which they uh, may do so. And there's a, a place as well in the doctrine and discipline that talks about the senior status and what, they're, um, what they could do. For example, if they do step out of serving, uh, they will be inactive status. And it talks about what they could do as far as or cannot do at conferences mm -hmm. and, and so forth. But there's no retirement age. 
That's so good to know too. And one other question that I thought of, I know in our current system, uh, licensed local pastors are able to vote on certain things at the annual conference level, uh, but not on other things. And I'm assuming since we're kind of doing away with some of those statuses, how does that affect uh, people's voting rights? Correct. Because we do not have that status any longer. So a local pastor uh, will be, since they would be, depending upon how they have completed their education or if they have completed all the requirements, they will be an elder. So they will have voting uh, rights at the conferences. Uh, the other thing that some of the local pastors are excited about is no more DCOM, no more district committee or ordained ministry. <laughs> that is something to rejoice about. Exactly. Can hear angels singing in the background. At exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Another question about those who are kind of in process with candidacy. Um, uh, does that simply transfer over? Um, how, how will that work? Cause I know a lot of people were kind of like, I'm waiting to start this journey. And, and I've said to them, well, it's better to get started down the road a little bit before, um, before the new denomination launches. So how are you handling candidacy and those who are in seminary and so forth? Yes. Yeah, so the, the candidacy, there is, uh, some similarities, uh, some differences, for example, uh, once they, uh, start the process, the, they become, uh, certified through their local church. And so as a certified candidate, then they would, uh, have a minimum of six months where they do some type of internship and, uh, being mentored. And, and again, that's a minimum, a minimum of six months. Uh, and at that time they would have to, uh, go ahead and uh, file as, uh, that they are moving towards the deacon ordination. And so from there, it's very similar to everything else that we have just said. But again, they begin as that certified candidate within their current, their local church. And that's where that takes place with the SPRC and their leadership council. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One more that I had, I just keep these keep popping into my head because as you're talking, I'm thinking, Someone else has asked me this question before, and I'm, Stephanie's feeling the same way. I mean, because we get bombarded with them. We're glad that you get to field them now, by the way, that there's an official person we can send them to. But uh, in terms of in terms of forming those annual conferences and things like that, at what point does that happen? Does that happen prior to um, the official launch of the GMC, or does that happen sequentially afterwards? Is that sort of being etched in pencil at this point? How is that working? Because I know that's a question I get quite a lot. Yes. And so one of the things that I've been sharing with individuals is that uh, because when they ask questions and some that have concerns with how some things are worded within the draft uh, of doctrines and discipline, I always uh, try to highlight it is a draft. And so once they start folding in, we will have what's called the convening conference. And that's where that will be the, the conferences uh, and everything will be set at that point. So even at the convening conference, when it when the delegates come to that, they will have a voice in the formation of the final draft of our doctrine and discipline and a voice in the formation of our conferences and, and what goes into that. So that would take place at that moment. Uh, which I, I like that, that it will be done that way because it does give people on the ground, it does give our lay people and clergy a chance to have a voice um, in the formation of that. So what other things do you think will be addressed at that convening conference? 
Wow, that's a good question. (laughs) (laughs) And I think some of the the things that we've already talked about will be uh, fine-tuned a little bit. Maybe some of the wording, for example, uh, I'm paying attention to when I get questions over and over of a misunderstanding, uh, for example, the, the deacon question. Mm-hmm. So that might be some things that we need to look at to fine tune in, in that particular area so that when somebody's reading it, it doesn't sound like this is what we're saying, but there's more clarity around it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the other portion too is um, the accountability piece, because there's a huge fear that we're going to be right back here again. So how do we uh, avoid that. So I think that's something that we would um, discuss even more in more detail as well at that conference. Um, it's it's right now that's just at the forefront of everybody's mind. How do we avoid this again? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and how when do I we think, go ahead, Stephanie? Go oh, ahead, Stephanie. Th- thanks, Bob. When I think about the amount of things that have to be addressed at that convening conference, do you have any idea? This is just a practical question. How long we anticipate that? going for <laughs> let's hope not two weeks right? <laughs> but that is a good question uh and, and then again it may take that long because this right. is the very beginning of a, a, a new denomination so yeah uh, but if it's any indication of some of the assemblies that we've been having um even though we've had to get into some very difficult conversations when we make different votes and so forth, it it has been done in such a spirit of um, just camaraderie and respect. And and so even if it does take two weeks, I think that we will probably all be drained and tired, but joy-filled. I think it's going to be a celebration. Yeah. Yeah. The thing that I, I think about that is that, you know, we're starting with something. I mean, you know, I think that's the key. Everyone's like, well, I don't like this or I don't like that or, or I love this or, but everything is, is set in, in wet cement, you know, and, um, or as, or as Jeff Greenway has said, it's not even wet cement, it's the ingredients for cement, right? (laughs) you know, that, that, you know, you can't show up at a convening conference and look at everyone in the room and go, okay, so what do you want to do? You know, that, that, right. that doesn't work. <laughs> right. You you have to come up with something as a as a baseline to say this is the base for a discussion. Now we can change this. We can do that. When we worked on the initial uh, book of doctrine and discipline through the WCA through the Next Steps Working Group, that was kind of what we thought. And then Transitional Leadership Council takes it a step further. So both of those are going to feed into the convening conference as all kinds of foundational work that can be built upon. Um, and, and it sounds like you're, you're taking that and running with it. You, you know, it's, and, and thank you for bringing that up because one of the amazing things that I have seen in just a short time that I've been with the team, um, I, I'm just flabbergasted and in awe of the work that the leadership team, that Keith, that Walter, that Teresa, that uh, the task force that everybody has put into what has taken place so far. And, and, you know, if I wish that the average person out there could see the amount of work, sweat, tears, prayers uh, that have gone into it from what we have right now, it is, wow, I'm just in awe. Of, of all of that. And, mm-hmm. but, and one of the uh, other things too, uh, that just touched my mind when you were talking, Bob, is 
when individuals call, one of the biggest things that I'm sensing, because I'm also a spiritual director, <laughs> so I, I can pick up on some what people will say one thing, but I pick up on the deeper thing that's underneath there. And I'm sensing that I'm talking to a lot of people who have either been hurt or um, that we talked about the angst. Um, the, the trust level is, is so low now. Um, the uncertainty, the fear because of uncertainty and, and just not knowing and tiredness. You know, we've been waiting, waiting, waiting. And one of the things that I have uh, just been led to do, felt led to do, is not just answer a question, but speaking to the soul of a person, to be able to, to help those individuals, um, to have that sense of security that God gives us. Uh, yes, waiting is hard, uh, but we've seen all throughout scripture that number one, we don't wait alone. <laughs> God is always with us, sustaining us, giving, that, giving us that strength. But I think the most important thing is letting them know they're not alone. Uh, I know there have been a lot of times uh, in, in my own conference, sometimes I felt alone, but just assuring them that they're not alone. The other thing that I've noticed when I talk to people is they want to do something. They, they want to be a part of this. And, and they're like, well, what can I do? And, and, you know, I'm trying to think, how can I get them connected? So I tell them to go to their, uh, to their conference, WCA council, their local chapter, and, and see what are some ways they can to get involved. Because that's the other thing I noticed that people are wanting to have a part of this new formation. Um, and, and, they, and so they're itching to do something. And so that's the other thing I'm noticing as well. Mm-hmm. This is really helpful. And, and talking with you, Angela, and we had a chance to just meet briefly in Alabama at the at the global legislative assembly and global gathering, I can't think of a better person to be in this position right now. And, and it's exciting to have you on board uh, to do this. And, uh, and I know as people listen to this, they're thinking, I have a question I want to ask Angela. So we might have to do a periodic ask Angela segment here on the podcast. (laughs) If you're up for that, when we start getting tons of questions, yeah, we could do an ask Angela qu- uh, question, but if people have questions or things that they're concerned about and they want to contact you, not at seven o'clock in the morning, hopefully, but, but at, <laughs> at a reasonable hour, uh, what's the best way for them to get a hold of you? Yes. So they could either, um, contact me through my email, which is a pleasance, P L E A S A N T S at wesleyancovenant.org. And some have either called me on my cell, and I think that's uh, public as well, and which is 704-648-8936. So one of those two ways people have reached out. Mm-hmm. And some have reached out through Messenger. I'm on different forms of social media, so they have reached out through Messenger and Instagram. So yeah, all the ways they can get me. Sounds like you are super accessible, which we are very grateful for. And we're so grateful for the work that you're doing. One of the things I'm always so impressed with when I'm able to visit with people on the WCA team is just your attention to detail and the way that you are taking this task so very seriously. I love the team that we have and so grateful that you're a part of that. And thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. It's been great being here.
And we want to thank you all for joining us on the podcast. Thank you, Stephanie. As always, um, always great stuff um, with the conversations we get to have with people. It's always a real pleasure. And uh, we do invite you to ask us questions that we will probably send on to Angela uh, by <laughs> sending your questions to podcast at wesleyandcovenant.org. Uh, we'll do our best to answer those. But primarily, we want you to share uh, the podcast around. Uh, we know that uh, this is a great medium for people who do have questions about the Global Methodist Church and about what's coming up. We'll make sure that we put Angela's information, contact information in the show notes so that you have that. We also encourage you to follow us on Twitter at WCA Pod. And make sure that you're checking out all the latest news on wesleyandcovenant.org, which is the website for the Wesleyan Covenant Association. So thank you both, Stephanie and Angela, and thank you for joining us on this edition of Holy Conversations, the podcast of the Wesleyan Covenant Association. We'll see you next time.